There we go. <laughs> this isn't the service on the internet, is it? I have to take that out. <clears throat> okay, here we go. <laughs> he was a brash young boxer from Louisville, Kentucky. And he died this past June. Famous, popular icon. Started out being called Cassius Clay, his given name, and then took the name Muhammad Ali. And it was when he was just becoming a, a boxer and wanting to be known that he said in February 1964, I am the greatest. Remember that? He made that boast, actually, before he had accomplished very much. In fact, he said, I am the greatest. I said that before I knew I was. <laughs> I figured that if I said it enough, I would convince the world that I really was the greatest. And it would, when it comes to boxing, arguably, you could say he was. No one had the skills, the swiftness. He was controversial, to be sure. Later in life, became quite a humanitarian. Three-time heavyweight champion of the world, so he actually backed up far as boxing goes, what he said. Many were shocked by his bravado, but I think it's even more shocking to realize that 2,000 years ago, the disciples were saying the very same thing. I am the greatest. Open your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, and we'll look at the story. I think nothing shows so well how far the disciples had strayed from the mission of their master than this particular portion of Scripture in Mark's Gospel, chapter 9. Now, before we get to the verse 33, I simply want to remind you that in this chapter we've experienced some amazing things. It was the chapter of the Transfiguration where Jesus allowed his divinity to come through his humanity, and Peter, James, and John on the high mountain, probably Mount Hermon, just north of Caesarea Philippi, saw Christ like no one else had seen him. But when they came down the mountain, the other disciples who were at the base, the other nine, why, they, they were impotent in their ministry. They were unable to cast out a demon from a young boy, and the father was grief-stricken. Now, the disciples had done this before, but for some reason, they couldn't do it now. And Jesus pinpointed the problem. You're not dependent upon me in prayer. So they make their way up from the north, and they go back into the region of Galilee, which is home turf for most of these disciples. And as we're going to notice, they will come all the way to Capernaum. So we pick up the story actually in verse 30. They left that place, the mountain, and passed through Galilee. And Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were. Now why? Why would he have this? Not only did he not know, want people to know uh, what he was proclaiming and that he was Messiah, didn't want people to know his identity, now he doesn't even want them to know his location. But the answer is given to us in verse 31 because it was teaching his disciples. He knew that these guys, the 12, 
the apostles, the ones who would build the church, would build a church that couldn't survive unless their attitudes about ministry were changed. Jesus could perceive that uh, they were caught up with so many false views. And by the way, any teacher can leave propositions to his disciples, but to be able to write those propositions on their hearts, that takes time. And so alone in the privacy of a house, or maybe out somewhere in a remote location, Jesus wanted to infuse in his disciples the truth about himself and his kingdom. Now this section of scripture, actually verse 33, all the way down to the end of the chapter, is actually focused on discipleship. There's a common theme, even though it seems to go from one different story to another. And the story is about how to minister, how to follow Christ, how to serve. Jesus predicts that he's going to die, and whenever he does that, he does that three times in the Gospel of Mark, whenever he does it, it's followed by instruction about how to serve, instruction about how to be a disciple, and he corrects their false views, which is exactly what he's going to do here. And when he corrects false views, it's typical for Jesus to turn their world view upside down. And what I'm going to say today should turn your world upside down. You may struggle against it, but it is the way of the follower of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 31, Jesus told his disciples, this was his curriculum, his lesson, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. Now, he told them uh, about that in chapter 8 and even mentioned it again in chapter 9. But there's something new in his prediction about his suffering. He now mentions that he is going to be, do you see it, betrayed. He is going to be handed over, delivered into the hands of men. Now, that's a very interesting Greek word because it's a word that is used both of men and of God. It is the common word that is used to describe what Judas is about to do to Jesus. He will betray him. He will deliver him up to the chief priests for a few pieces of silver. But it's also the very same word that is used when it describes God giving Jesus up. For instance, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, we read these words. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. There it is. God delivered up his son. He didn't betray him, but he handed him over. He gave him up. He delivered him and allowed wicked men with evil intent to take him and kill him. And of course, this wonderful verse says, if God the Father loves us so much that he gives us the greatest gift, his son, Will he not give us all the lesser gifts too? And the answer to that is absolutely. When we focus on the greatest gift, God wants to ensure and encourage that he will give us everything else. But notice verse 32. The response of the disciples is this. They didn't understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask. 
clueless and frightened. It sounds like me in college. I didn't understand what they were talking about and afraid to ask a question, knowing that my question would probably be so stupid they would realize I didn't know what I was thinking or what I, what I was uh, supposed to be studying, that, that I didn't have the answer at all. So it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. So the disciples are quiet. They're afraid to say anything, at least to Jesus. <laughs> but they're not afraid to say something to each other. It's interesting, the, the teaching here was exclusively for them in a private, remote place so they could get the message written on their heart and they still didn't get it. That is amazing to me. But sometimes I think they didn't want to get it. You know what I mean? Have you ever been to the doctor's office and, and the doctor has said something to you and you didn't really like what he said and you, the patient, really got more information than you wanted and sometimes the doctor wants to give us more of the grim details and we say, I don't even want to hear about it. I want to remain willfully ignorant because if I know too much, <laughs> it's going to haunt me all throughout the day. And the way some patients respond to their doctors, I think, is the way the disciples were responding to Jesus. Don't give us any more information about your death. We want to put it out of our mind. We got in, in view this idea of a kingdom and glory and, and conquering, and we don't want the grim details of your death. And I think some of the disciples were still wondering if Jesus was just a little bit off in his messianic expectation. So now we come to verse 33. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, we don't know exactly what house, but usually the house in Capernaum they, they would go to would be Peter's house. And this time it's not filled with crowds. Somehow they were able to come home and get into the house unannounced. And Jesus said to them, what were you arguing about on the road? They didn't think Jesus heard them, but he did. By the way, when you and I are involved in discussions that we think are private, they are never private because Jesus knows. He knows exactly what they were saying. Well, why did he ask the question? Again, we need to remind ourselves that Jesus never asks a question to merely gain the facts. He has all of those, but he wants to draw us out. He wants to confront us with our wayward position. And in this situation, Jesus wants to give them a lesson that basically says this, beware of selfishness. Selfishness in ministry. What a grief it must have been to the heart of the Savior to hear his disciples, after he told them he was going to die, arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. That's verse 34. Who is going to be the greatest? Who's the greatest now? Who's going to have the position of power then when the kingdom comes? Who's the greatest? What a grief that must have been to the heart of Christ. He was focused on suffering. They were focused on supremacy, superiority. 
What a chill it must have been, though, when Jesus said to them, hey, guys, what were you arguing about on the road? Uh, The word for argue is where we get our English word dialogue. Sometimes it means to reason or discuss, but often it means to dispute, a heated debate, a back and forth. And that's what you have here. What were you disputing about? I, I saw how the word somehow sometimes got loud and some of you got animated and some of you were upset. And of course, he knew more than he let on. And they responded, verse 34, with the shame, the silence of shame. They kept quiet. Because on the way, they had been arguing about who was the greatest. Peter, James, and John said, well, it's hands down easy argument. I mean, (laughs) excuse me, but who else was invited up to the mountain? I mean, who else saw Jesus in his glory? If there is a great disciple among us, it's got to be one of us three. And then I'm sure they argued among themselves as to who was the best of the three. And the 11 who were down at the base of the mountain couldn't do ministry that they used to perform rather easily, that is to cast out a demon, and so they were arguing about the problem and about who would be the greatest. And when Jesus asked the question, they were filled with shame, they were embarrassed, bold to speak without his presence, embarrassed to speak in his presence. You know, there are some subjects we think that are totally appropriate among each other, but totally inappropriate if the Savior were listening. Of course, you know the answer to that, don't you? He's always listening. Now, you have to get into the Jewish context and realize this whole idea about what is the greatest was a common discussion. Archaeologists have discovered in the Qumran context, that's that community that lived where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, at least they think uh, that's the Qumran uh, community, but they found from those ruins discussions about who is the greatest. In fact, that community ranked every person in the community annually as to the worthiness and the spirituality of their character. And if you use this same word, who is the greatest, which by the way is based on the word megas, mega, biggest, greatest, most influential, you see the disciples were always talking about that. Who's the greatest prophet? The Jews said to Jesus, are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than Abraham? They were constantly measuring the prophets. What's the greatest commandment? Who has the greatest power? Greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. They're always measuring things by what is the greatest. And it was Jesus who was going to tell them that the greatest thing in the world is not what you think. In another portion of scripture, he said the Gentiles rate their powerful people too. But in the Gentile world, the most powerful person is the one who has the most servants. In my world, it's the one who serves the most. Wow. What a totally different concept. Verse 35, 
Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said to them, by the way, rabbis informally taught, maybe as they were walking through the fields, but when they would formally teach, they would sit. That may be why Jesus sat in a boat. One of the reasons why Jesus sat in the boat, the other was the crowd. He would sit in a boat and the crowd would stand on the shore. But when a rabbi would sit, they would often take the prayer shawl and put it over their head. The students would either stand or sit around the rabbi, and they would realize that when that happened, something important, something vital is about ready to be given. Some lesson is going to be taught. And I can imagine Jesus sitting down, putting the prayer shawl over his head, the air filled with expectation, the long silence started by the disciples' inability to answer the question of Jesus. And then he broke the silence with this bomb. Anyone who wants to be first has to be last. And if you want to be great, you've got to be the servant of everyone. In Matthew's gospel, he puts it this way. He who is great among you will be everyone's servant. And whoever exalts himself will be abased, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The servant is the greatest. It's not the lord of the manor, it's the laborers. Not the king in the castle, it's the serf. It's not how many servants you have, it's how well do you serve? Now think about that. There probably isn't a person in here who doesn't struggle with that concept because we all want to be king of the hill. Ever play that game as a kid? King of the hill, you, you want to push everyone else down. You want to be the one on top. And that is the argument that is still going on in the church today. Who is the greatest. We're prone to be driven by personal status. There is the thought that when you are given a position in religion, you get the honored seat. You get the favored chair. You get the special parking lot. You, you have a chance to benefit your own kingdom and advance your own enterprise now that you're in this thing called religion, and we are suffering from so many celebrities in so-called Christendom today. It's dragging us down. And Jesus said the greatest is the servant. A few years ago, we took a team of South people to Africa, and we flew into Niger, the country, and uh, we were going to the capital city of Niamey. And as we landed at the airport and went into this rather humble building, we had to fill out some custom papers, as you often do, and we had to be interviewed based on the way we filled out those papers. It asked for your name, it asked for passport, and that kind of thing. And then it asked for your occupation. Now, whenever I go to a foreign country, I'm a little cautious about what I put down for my occupation, because in some places, I might say the wrong thing, and they'll just kick me right out. And so I tried to think, as they might think in that country. Uh, I can't put down preacher, that's too informal. 
I, I probably shouldn't put down pastor because maybe they'll think I actually watch real sheep, and so that doesn't make sense. So I decided upon the word minister, and I wrote it down, minister. People were going through the line, our team, I think I was the last one going through the line, the gentleman who was wearing military gear with military people behind him holding guns looked up to me and said, minister, you're no minister. I said, yes, I am. He looked around and said, no, you're not. And then it dawned on me, in his country, the top government officials are ministers. The prime minister, the minister of the treasury, the Minister of Defense. And I just said, I was a government official of the United States of America. <laughs> he looked around, and I'm sure he thought, where's your entourage? How come we weren't notified of your arrival, your coming visit? Where's your clothes that dignify your position? Because I was dressed in travel casual. You're no minister, he said. And then I explained that I, in our country, sometimes that word is used for a minister of the gospel. I don't think he believed me, but he stamped my papers and let me in. <laughs> You're no minister. Oh, that really hit me. Sometimes, and it wasn't my conscious thought there, but sometimes we want to project that we are somebody with our titles of position and we expect respect from everyone around us. And Jesus said, you've got it all wrong. That's the way the world thinks. In my kingdom, the greatest is the servant. Which always boggles my mind that when we come to finding positions for service in our church, we can't seem to find enough people to serve. I don't know. Maybe we're arguing too much about how important we are <laughs> instead of getting in there and doing the job God's called us to do. I believe every economic problem, every political problem, the disputes in the church could be alleviated if people simply followed the command of Christ, be a servant to everyone. The divisions that tear apart the church probably would never occur if people would realize what a pleasure it is merely to serve. I don't care where. If I can do something for the good of God's kingdom, let me do it. And that's what pleases the Savior because Jesus is a servant. Think about this. We're gonna read in Mark chapter 10 when we get to verse 45, Jesus said, I came not to be ministered unto but to minister. I came not for someone to serve me, but I came to serve. And the way I'm going to do that is to give my life as a ransom for many. In Isaiah, Jesus was called the suffering servant, the chosen servant. Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, the Father said about the Messiah. I will put my spirit in him and he will bring justice to the nation. Or Isaiah 52, see my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, a prophecy concerning 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, you know Isaiah chapter 53, verse 11. After he has suffered, Jesus will see the light of life and be satisfied. By this knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. Jesus is a servant. And that great passage in Philippians chapter 2 says, although he thought it not robbery to be called equal with God, that was this title, Jesus is God. And it wasn't robbery. He wasn't stealing a title that wasn't his own. Nor did he grasp onto it, unwilling to let it go. But rather, he let go of that title and let go of his position and came to this earth. And the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7, he was made into the form of a servant. He was made a man and made a servant. And why a servant? So he could die for the sins of many and justify all who believe in him. I agree with Sinclair Ferguson who said, in the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service. It's not seen in how high we can climb up up the ladder, but how low we're willing to go for the sake of others. Spiritual egalitarianism is what Kent Hughes calls it. No hierarchy in the church. Oh, there is organizationally, there is some leadership and order, but when it comes to worth and value and true position in Christ, there's not male or female. There's not Jew or Greek. There's not bond or free. There's not rich or poor. We are one in Christ. We're all on the same level. The cross puts us there, and we're at the level of a servant. Have you lost that concept? The disciples did. Now, how did they do with this 11? Uh, How did they do with this lesson? How did they respond? Well, a couple chapters later, James and John come with their mother and say to Jesus, hey, could you give my son positions in your kingdom, one on your right hand, one on your left? Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup that I'm about ready to drink? Speaking of his death. And the disciples said, we can. No problem. Jesus said, well, it's not mine to give. And you guys still don't have a clue that it's all about service. And when Jesus came to be crucified, remember in the upper room before he gave that wonderful discourse in John's Gospel, and they were going to have a communion service. It's the Last Supper, and they need to wash people's feet, and nobody would wash the feet. What a stinky supper that was. Until Jesus got up. And Peter said, oh, no, Master, you shouldn't do that. Let what are the other peons? I shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it. One of the other guys should. And Jesus said, no. I'll do it. And then he said, what you've seen me do, do for others. If you want to be happy, do what I've done to you. It's all about being a servant. Now, Jesus gives an illustration. Sometimes we don't see these two stories together, but they are. Verse 36, he took a little child, because in the Aramaic, the word for child 
and the word for servant are identical. In the Greek, there's some overlap as well. Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Mark wrote in Greek, and so the connection is in the word. He took a little child whom he'd placed among them. Maybe it was Peter's child they were, if they were in Peter's house. Jesus took the child in his arms, and he said, whoever come, welcomes one of these little ones, these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, not only welcomes me, receives me, but the one who sent me. Which means when I play the role of a servant, I need to become like a little child. A little child who has nothing to offer. A little child who cannot do me any good. A little child of no influence or power or position. I need to come humbly as a servant. And as I serve and welcome those who aren't powerful, I not only welcome Christ, I welcome the Father. And I do the work of God for the glory of God. The heart of a child is the heart of the servant. And the one who takes in the child takes in the Lord himself. Now quickly, I want to show you that the next story is actually connected with this as well. And here's another lesson for ministering. Beware of exclusiveness. I don't know in verse 38 whether John was convicted by the lesson that Jesus had just given or he wanted in pride to boast, but he said, hey, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he wasn't one of us. (laughs) Isn't it ironic that just a little while ago the disciples couldn't drive out the demons and now, this is what really galls them, someone is doing it, but they're not on their team. They're driving out demons, verse 38, in Jesus' name. But they're not of their denomination. And Jesus says, don't stop him. This thing of ministry is about humility, and it's not exclusively regulated to you. It's not under your purview alone. Don't stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against me is for me. Whoever is not against us is for us. And now Jesus gives another principle that he wants his church to understand in the whole midst of ministry, and that is there's a lot of people doing a lot of good things, and we shouldn't spend our time attacking those who in the name of Christ are trying to do something good doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that's happening, but we spend too much time trying to tear others down and too much time thinking that we're the only ones that are pleasing God. So I suppose the first lesson is about not thinking of yourself as being superior. The second lesson is don't be a snob when it comes spiritually to your work. Whoever is not against us is for us. Not only that, verse 41, truly I tell you, whoever gives a cup of cold water in my name for the sake of Christ, because you belong to me, they'll not lose their reward. Simple deeds will be blessed. Someone put this attitude, this snobbish attitude in a poem 
I thought this was good. The poem says, believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right, you must confess. Feel as I feel, think as I think. Eat what I eat, drink what I drink. Look as I look, do as I do. Only then will I have fellowship with you. hard to laugh at something that hits home. Remember the name Ernie Harwell? <clears throat> he passed away, strong believer. And one of his famous quotes comes from a situation where one of his broadcasting partners was a strong smoker, and someone said, Ernie, did you ever tell him to stop? And this is what Ernie said, I didn't want any friction to be between us. And given the choice of being right or being kind, I think it's better to be kind. Now, not morally right and morally wrong, but this whole idea of thinking you're always right <clears throat> and always wanting to correct everyone around you, and sometimes maybe even being right, but sometimes having the choice, it's better to be kind to be long-suffering, to be gracious. And if things aren't exactly as you want them to be, Jesus says, sir, it's not all about you, and it's not about only you. It's about me and my kingdom and the glory of God. And the very last verse of the chapter says, hey, learn to live in peace with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much that needs to be done in your church, not just here, but in other good churches in this city and other good churches in this state and in our nation and around the world. And we need to be praying and we need to be glad when things go forward in their congregations and we need to encourage it. Lord, we need to understand that the greatest person in the kingdom is one who takes the lowest position of servant. And that's what Jesus did. And we are to be like him. And that in our serving, we're going to rub shoulders with those who may do a few things differently, but if they're serving for your name, as Paul said in Philippians chapter one, I praise the Lord that Christ is preached even if it's not perfectly. Lord, you know, my preaching's not perfect, said Paul. Lord, save us from being so exclusive and so selfish that we are no earthly good in our work for you. In Jesus' name, amen.